This episode of Untold follows the early career of one of New South Wales' best exports, Mr Andrew Hughes. Andrew talks extensively around some of the experiences and learnings that shaped his approach to business and indeed his career. A recurring theme throughout is Andrew's love of storytelling and the great importance he places upon it. Andrew truly caught the travel bug as an 18-year-old. Skillfully winning a place on a Rotary Exchange programme, financially supported by his proud POM parents and with extra spending money from shifts at his local McDonald's, Andrew headed off to spend time in northern Germany. During the early weeks of the exchange, the highlight of each day was the noise of the letterbox, triggering a Pavlovian-like response from Andrew as it meant fresh letters from family and friends had arrived to help him combat his homesickness. A post-university exchange to southern Germany was followed up with a full European tour, consisting of bar jobs, as well as becoming a professional tour guide, spinning yarns about some of Europe's most prominent cities before making it back home to Australia. Andrew also talks about how he almost became a travel presenter and a household name across the region. The tragic events of 9-11 putting the kibosh on this. Australian TV's loss was definitely hospitality's gain. Andrew talks about his early days as a hotelier with Best Western and how his career changed gears when he joined IHG Australasia in a business development role. Then Dubai came calling. Andrew joined Atlantis Dubai, and in this career-defining pre-opening role, was ideally placed to hone and develop his love of storytelling, taking it to the next level. With Atlantis the Palm successfully positioned and launched, Andrew then had the unique opportunity of teaming up with Mike Scully and the team at Seven Tides. Enjoy, part one, Untold with the Azahala. Andrew, as a relatively young 18-year-old, you headed out on your first international visit to Germany. This must have been equally nerve-wracking, but also invigorating. Could, could you tell us how that came about? Um, yeah, it was a, I did a youth exchange with the, the Rotary program um, back when I was 18. And it was, it was really interesting, right, because I'd never been overseas before. Um, my parents were both English. They met in Australia. They were... 10 pound ponds as they were called back then. Um, and they had always talked about their travels overseas, but I'd never experienced it myself. I grew up in country, Northern New South Wales in, in Australia. Um, and I didn't really think much of it. You know, I got, I, I was successful in the interview process. I was selected to, to go overseas and kind of by accident, I ended up in, uh, in Germany. And um, my parents had always said to me, look, we'll contribute towards you, you going. Um, as long as you do two things. One is that you, um, that you go to a place where English is not the first language. So you, you have to immerse in, in a new language. And secondly, you have to earn your spending money. 
Um, and so from, from sort of the age of 14, nine months, I was uh, flipping burgers at McDonald's and, uh, and doing quite well there to earn money to, to go off to, to Germany. But um, yeah, when I landed, I really hadn't put any thought into traveling overseas whatsoever. I had a massive culture shock and I was desperately homesick for the first, first couple of months. Um, but I managed to uh, sort of chip away at it. I had a very um, generous and, and beautiful host family there in, in North Germany. Um, and I started to, to get a handle on the language. And as, uh, as the story goes, I mean, you know, you're going for a sort of a walk one day and you, you trip over your, your, your foot and, and you go and you, and you find yourself kind of swearing in another language or thinking another language. You start to dream in another language. And, you know, I, I, I grew my hair long. I got a girlfriend and, and after 12 months, I didn't want to come home. Um, but I think the, the big learning for me, right, I mean, I did a, I grew up massively in that year. It was the, it was 1993, so there was no internet, there was no email. Um, calling home was like five Deutschmark or about five dollars a minute, so that was out of the question. Um, and so I just had to immerse. But the one thing, the, the, the one thing I took away from that the most was um, learning the art of, of story writing and, and storytelling, and that that used to come from. Um, my friends and my, my family writing me letters and sending faxes back in the day. Um, and my favourite time of day when I first arrived was hearing the clink of the mailbox um, and receiving mail from home. And, uh, and, and I've still got all the letters. I've kept all the letters from that time. I have some very fond memories of, of my late mother during that, during that time as well in her handwriting. And I just find the power of storytelling and story writing to be to be so strong and I'm so passionate about it from, from living that year abroad. And did you have educational or work commitments during that time over in Germany? Well, I'd, I'd finished high school in Australia at that time, um, but there was a general expectation that I would go to high school in Germany. Um, but I had a very generous um, rotary club on the other end and they decided that it was probably more beneficial for me to go off to language school. And so I would take the bus from my little country German town about uh, sort of 45 minutes each way each day to, uh, to learn um, German with a whole host of, of other expats um, and, um, and to try and help support my, uh, my uh, desire to travel while I was there. I, uh, I got a job at McDonald's while, while I was there and imagine trying to, uh, to learn to um, understand the McDonald's system that I had in Australia, but in a completely foreign language. It was, uh, it was a fascinating time. And then your passion for German continued and it, it was part of the course that you studied in University of Queensland. Yeah, so I came back to Australia and, and I had a, a real thirst for travel, right? I'd been bitten by the travel bug as we, as we all talk about. And, you know, I'd had these amazing experiences while I was traveling around Europe as an 18 year old um, while I was on exchange. Um, and I was desperate to go back and travel. So. I went to the University of Queensland and I studied in their, their German department. I studied economics in German and, and eventually I won a scholarship to go back to Germany and, and study for three months in Freiburg in the, in the southern part of Germany. And for me, that was just my ticket back to Europe, right? And from there, after three months, I was off to, uh, off to London. And uh, after doing the sort of the, the round of working in pubs and the like, I... Um, I ended up becoming a, a tour guide for Top Deck for a couple of years and, and uh, traveling around Europe as a, as a tour leader, which was an, an amazing experience. So 
well and truly bitten by the travel bug. And my understanding is that your career could have gone quite differently and, and could have been closely associated with media. Could, could you tell us a bit about the race around the world competition that you took part in in 2000 that predated some of these TV programs like The Amazing Race and so on? Yeah, I was living in Brisbane at the time. I'd, I'd come back from uh, being a tour guide and I was desperate desperate for, for having my own wardrobe, my own bedroom. And so I gave up my life on the road and, and I was working for a, a travel wholesaler, Compass Holidays at the time, specialising in the Mediterranean and, and uh, the Middle East. And um, I uh, applied for a, a competition on radio, which was called Sammy and Dean's Great Race. And you, you, it was basically two guys against two girls to get us far away from Brisbane in 12 days with $1,200 each. And wherever you ended up in the world, they would fly you back. Um, and every day we had to do a live broadcast to the radio wherever we were in the world. And we had to, uh, we had to carry a camera and do filming for Channel 9 for an Australian network um, at the time. Um, and I met one of my closest friends now in the, in the boardroom of this radio station, Triple M. Um, and we were teamed up together um, against these two girls. And having travelled across Europe, I mean, it was the funniest two weeks of my, my life. Um, and, and very challenging, but, but in a fun way at times. Um, you know, our very first radio phone call was live on air to half a million people in Brisbane from uh, 40,000 feet above India in business class where we had uh, managed to swindle our way in on Turkish Airlines <laughs> into business class. And I was using the little in-seat satellite phone. Um, and in the end, we beat these girls by, by eight kilometres. They were off in the Atlantic somewhere and we were in the Canary Islands. And, uh, and yeah, it was, a, it was a magical time in our life. Um, and so from there, we, we decided, well, hang on a second. This is what travel's all about. Travel's all about traveling with a mate. It's a rite of passage in Australia. Put your backpack on and, and go and really feel what travel is about. And so we pitched to a number of travel shows in, uh, in Australia at the time. And um, we managed to do some pilot TV series for, for the Getaway Program, which was uh, and still is one of Australia's top travel programs. Um, and yeah, we found ourselves traveling around Europe. We were paid to do it. We had a crew with us and, you know, it was, it was just such an amazing experience. And um, we were all due to go to air, ready to, uh, to, um, to go and, and, uh, and be on air in Australia. And then um, unfortunately it timed um, with, uh, with September 11. And it wasn't long after uh, the Twin Towers came down that, um, that the program came back to us and said, look, you know, now's not the time for us to, to be disruptive. Now's the time for us to be conservative and maintain our current programming format. And, and I respect that, but it was, a, it was a very challenging time for me to, to overcome that, that sort of, that, that excitement of, of finally achieving something you'd gone after um, to then have to, to give it away and, and go off and do something else. I mean, that was a, that was a challenging time. But the skills developed at that point have, have really helped you in your career, you know, in terms of seeing you give presentations or interviews as a storyteller and a raconteur, you're clearly not a household name or on the television in Australia, but you can tell that you've got had that experience and the professionalism and the exposure to it. So it obviously helped you. Well, I think my family and my wife would probably all argue that I love the sound of my own voice, Gareth. But it's, it's been something that, um, you know, as I said, storytelling has been a passion of mine. Um, and when I was tour guiding, I mean, it was, 
going around Europe to countries that you may have never been to before and having to research what you might um, find there and then somehow position yourself to an audience, to 40 odd people on a bus that you had been there before and that you were an expert. I mean, that, that took quite some doing. Um, and I found that, that there were a couple of pieces to it for me, but I think what was key is always, always researching and, and having, a, having a plan in your head, right? So, um, you know, I always, I'm always fascinated when I go and see presentations and the like that, that perhaps where presenters haven't grooved for that presentation or they haven't practiced. And, you know, we go, oh yeah, we can do it off the cuff and the like. But then I liken it to, you know, Olympians and, and professionals and experts who, who spend four years preparing for that one moment. And I really sometimes wonder about the quality of the workmanship we could produce if we took a little bit of extra time to prepare and plan and visualize. And I think the second thing I learned was that um, you don't know what you don't know. And usually as the presenter, you know much more than, than the audience. And so it's okay sometimes to not cover certain topics. It's okay to maybe forget some things as you, are, as you tell your stories because they're your stories to tell. And does it really matter if um, your story is um, that maybe you forget a part of your story as you're telling it? Because if the audience doesn't know, they don't know. And the third thing I, I guess I learned, particularly as a tour guide, was that that everyone wants to to hear what they want to hear. And, and it's one thing for us to tell our story; it's another to know whether that story resonates with the person who's listening. Um, and I think too often we find ourselves in a world where we're telling what we want to say and not thinking about, well, what, what does the audience want to hear? It might be the same story, but how you tell it may influence um, the, the impact and the cut through that you might be able to get. That's a good point. And, and it's customization and listening to the audience. During the, the, the TV career and everything was put on ice and clearly then had to, had to make a living. So you went into hotels with Best Western and uh, initially looking after corporate arrangements and then driving the international leisure market. Can you talk a bit about the role and then a, an early career hiccup that came about that you subsequently have used as a building block? It was a great learning experience, right? Going into hotels, I'd really given it no thought whatsoever. And I was literally trying to earn some money to enable us to go and, and do some more pilot TV work in the hope of still getting our, our show off the ground somewhere. Um, and, I, and I applied and was successful in, 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 uh, in receiving a job with Best Western in corporate sales, as you mentioned. Um, and my job was going out into small business parks and convincing small to medium enterprises to, to use our 200 plus hotel network around Australia. Um, and it was fascinating, right? Walking into these sort of mechanic shops and industrial parks and, and the like, and I'd be out on the road and I'd have these big, those, those ancient printouts that you used to get, right? The massive ones sitting, sitting on the seat in the car, as, as well as a, a couple of boxes of brochures in the back. Um, and I was a real old school sales rep, but I really, I was very green. I had no idea. Um, and then one day, uh, one of my colleagues who looked after international sales announced she was leaving the company. And our mutual boss said, oh, well, someone's got to go to America to do this, this trade show um, to, to present us to, to the American travel trade. And I went, oh, yeah, I'll go. 
And so I did. I went off to America and I, I did a um I did a show over there. I think it was called Oz Talk at the time, and we had to talk about our product. It was like speed dating, a little bit sort of virtuoso style, but but not to the sort of the 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 upscale market. Um, and we would go table to table, five, six minutes, talking about our offering. Um, and I would find myself going to these uh, these tables and these travel agents and talking about our properties in Australia. And they were glassy-eyed as it comes. And I don't think it was just from the, the fine sort of Australian beverage that was served at the functions. I think it was simply because I had no idea what the audience was buying and what I was trying to sell. So what they were looking for was leisure packages of sorts um, at the time. But I was a corporate sales guy and I just hadn't done any research. I hadn't been curious. I hadn't asked any questions. And I came back from that show and, and honestly, I'd, I'd failed. I mean, I hadn't been successful. Um, and I vowed to myself that I wouldn't make that mistake again. I wouldn't end up on a, on a sales trip or in a, in a sales meeting and not have been curious about, about what the audience was looking for and giving them what they need as opposed to just regurgitating um, a series of, of theoretical USBs. Then you moved on from Best Western to IHG and, and held business development responsibilities for Australasia. How did you enjoy that? And what were some of your favorite moments in the role? That, that was a wonderful experience for me. I mean, I was, I was headhunted from Best Western by, um, by Kerry Hannaford at the time, who's still, um, still plying her trade in the industry, I think over in uh, India with, with Accor these days. Um, and she was a wonderful leader and she coaxed me over to, to IHG from Best Western. And I am so very grateful for that period of my career. It was a bit over three years. Um, and that's where I, I started to take on more management responsibility um, as well as portfolio responsibility. And because the system was so good for my HG there in Australia, I was able to carve out um, sort of career opportunities very rapidly um, because they had great mentoring programs, awesome training. Um, and I was there at the time where, where Karen Shepherd was there and Leanne Harwood, who now heads up IHG for Australasia. Um, Anthony Mays is in Japan these days. And they were fantastic leaders, great operators. And the system and the investment from IHG was, um, was brilliant. I mean, I've never really experienced that anywhere else in my, my career was the way IHG invested in us as, as people to provide the right support network to, to push your own career through the funnel while still delivering fantastic results. So you talked about then some of the, the extraordinary leaders who are very senior within IHG, but also within other organizations, for example, Alan Watts is now heading up Hilton Asia Pacific and has a, a background from IHG in Australasia. Aside from those systems, was there anything else that you think helped provide the skills, work habits or abilities that have allowed all these executives to develop such successful hospitality careers? I think at IHG that you were, you were set for success. And, and I think that's um, because the hotel chain was, was very successful, um, but they really, they always believed in performance, but they equally believed in people. And for me, people and performance, high performance teams go one foot, one foot. I mean, if you're too much oriented towards performance and numbers, you're likely to go out of a straight line. 
if you're too oriented towards relationship and people and sort of customer networking and you don't have the numbers, um, then again, you, you don't end up walking in a straight line. And I think that what they provided was the framework to enable us to not only prepare as um, prepare us as, as future leaders, but equally to give us an opportunity to, to apply that trade. So um, we went through a lot of um, sales modules at the time. And for those of us that, that had gone through the first sales module, we'd quite quickly be put into mentoring or facilitation roles in the next module so that we could then um, pass on those learnings to, to others in the system. So a lot of train the trainer and, and scenarios where people having taken what they've learned have been able to give that to a big network of colleagues and, and upcoming talent. Absolutely. And, and I think that was the big difference, right, was that the investment wasn't just, um, you know, words on a PowerPoint presentation or a theoretical employee value proposition. I think there's just so much um, in, the, in the sort of the pre-COVID times, I feel that that was an area that was really lacking in organisations, that, um, that this term of an employee value proposition was a catch-all. Well, how do, we, how do we position ourselves out to the employees rather than, you know, what's really inside us? What's the DNA inside us? And I, I think that that was the, the big difference. There was an investment, but then there was this train the trainer and it would allow you to, to continue. And I had um, my, my uh, boss and, and one of the, the best leaders I've, I've worked for was Anthony Mays. And he used to always have this, this phrase, he would, say, he would say to me, is it interesting or is it useful? And I really, I, I really took so much away from that when I was thinking about how do I prioritize, what are the conversations I'm having, what's the engagement level I wanna have? How do I find that right balance between something that's just interesting versus something that can have impact? something can be used. Then post IHG, a, an opportunity, which at the time would have had the, the biggest budget and one of the most exciting milestone hotels of the decade, which, which was being recruited by Atlantis to, to Dubai, sorry, Atlantis in Dubai. So you must have been really stoked to have been approached and then it might have, must have been quite an, again, an ambitious and exciting decision to up and leave Australia and, and, uh, get on the road selling this behemoth? You know, I look back at it, Gareth, and, and I, um, I, I think, yeah, wow, that was pretty brave at the time, actually. You know, I was, I was right at that stage of my career. Um, I left behind in Australia, you know, a lot of great friends and, and, and close connections. And I was, I was working very well at IHG. I was successful. Um, but Brett Armitage, who had worked for IHG, I'd had this relationship with him at IHG, in uh, in Australia, New Zealand, he had gone over to um, to uh, to run all the commercial businesses at Atlantis the Palm, and he'd given me the tap to go over. Um, and I arrived um, a year before the opening, and I was the first sort of salesperson on board, apart from Brett. And I, you know, it was it was kind of sitting in the offside office, almost the demandable kind of stuff, right? Preparing for this um, this opening, and I really had no idea when I arrived. <laughs> About, about how emotionally connected the marketplace, the community in Dubai was to, to the opening of Atlantis the Palm. Um, at the time, um, Dubai was very compressed. It was, uh, it was really very, very high demand from, from such a, a variety of source markets. And yet there was very little supply. 
Um, Jamira was was very successful in the marketplace, but it sort of earned themselves a reputation of the no brokers of no, we um we're not going to give you inventory and access and the like. And and I think the marketplace, so you had the, the trade, the travel trade where we're all really pumped for these 1500 rooms that were coming into the market. And um, at the same time, the local community in Dubai were were equally pumped for this, this new play toy of water parks and restaurants and the like. Um, and I found in this pre-opening stage that wherever I went, didn't matter which barbecue, which brunch, which interaction I had, everyone wanted a slice of it last the palm. And, um, and that was, I mean, it was incredible. It was so intense that, that year of lead up um, in preparing to, to open Atlantis the Palm. Um, and it was career defining for me. I mean, it opened a lot of doors. I learned a tremendous amount. Um, and it really helped me um, be in an environment where I could sort of apply this, um, this theory or this trade around storytelling, um, because that's ultimately what Atlantis was. It was a bank of story after story after story. And how did you bring those stories out um, so that, that customers would would come. But a, a massive, massive learning experience, Gareth. And, you know, I remember on the the, uh, the day of opening, um, you know, we'd had a big fire in the lobby. We'd had to sort of move the, uh, relocate where we would be um, welcoming guests. It wasn't our main Porkeshire and, and lobby area. And I remember walking the floor of this, uh, of Atlantis the Palm, about 4.30 in the morning on the, on the very first day of arrival. And, um, and the marble was all polished and I was, I was ostensibly on my own walking past the, the giant aquarium and, and hearing the echoes of, of my footsteps and thinking to myself, this is the only time this is gonna happen, right? Because now we're in the go zone. And when we opened that, that hotel, I mean, it was a massive effort from everyone involved, but we had 104,000 room nights on the books um, and we'd whipped up a frenzy. Um, and that was, yeah, it was exciting times, high pressure times. So you've talked about storytelling, but Atlantis probably is as good an example as any is how important the harmony of all the commercial function elements are, that of PR, marketing, sales, and obviously optimal pricing and distribution. How, how did they all interrelate during your time? And, and how would you describe the search for finding the balance of, of all the elements together? I think that when you look at it from a hotel perspective, and I've, I've um, you know, I've, I've thought this for a very long time, it's, it's almost like you could simplify it and put, um, you've got hotels that have stories and you've got hotels that are transactional, right? It might be an urban downtown hotel and, and their business model is, I don't know, in either styles or, or whatever it might be. And then you've got hotels that want to tell a story. Um, and for the hotels that, that want to tell a story, which I'm very passionate about, um, those hotels have to be experts, particularly in PR. Um, and I think what Atlantis did differently was that PR was the lead, um, really, of, of going in and driving demand in markets. And our president at the time, Managing Director Alan Liebman, um, you know, he was, a, he was an intense guy, Alan, great guy. Um, but he was constantly in, in, the, in the face of the commercial teams and our um, our VP of PR at the time, um, Ashley McBain, is a very close friend. And it was always, okay, that was great. What's the next story? What's the next story? Where's the next story coming from? Where's the big story in Russia? How are we getting the Indian market? What's the big story? Um, and when we, we opened Atlantis the Palm, we had the big opening party. I'm sure a lot of the, the audience would remember it. I mean, we, we, it was the biggest pyrotechnics display the world had ever seen at the time. We lit up the Palm so you could see it from space. 
Um, and at the time we, um, we had the bridge suite, which was the number one suite. And I remember when we opened, it was 39,000 US dollars a night for the bridge suite um, that connected the two towers. And for the opening party, which was filled with celebrities, right, to tell this story, um, originally Oprah Winfrey was due to be in the bridge suite. Um, and I imagine for our PR team, it was a very difficult exercise in how do you allocate the different suites to, uh, to the different celebrities. Um, you and when get Oprah Winfrey- suite. You uh, get a suite, you get a suite. <laughs> I honestly, I had nothing to do with it. I would have loved to have been in that, in that room. Um, I would have loved it. Um, you know, I wonder where Boris Becker stayed at the time. But um, it, was, it was a big decision, right? Okay, Oprah's not coming. Who's going to sleep in the bridge suite? And um, they decided that Sharuk Khan would from India, um, you know, Indian Bollywood celebrity. And it was an absolute masterstroke from a PR perspective. And it wasn't long before India was one of the top source markets for Atlantis the Palm, simply because we tapped into this this hero worship in that marketplace by recognizing the celebrity status. And I think that's where um, Atlantis were absolutely experts. And I think there's a learning for even small um, hotels that have a story to tell is um, it's no good having a story if you don't have great storytellers. Who's telling that story for you? Um, and what is the story that they're going away from? And is it, is it relevant to that marketplace? Um, and that's where I really admired um, the Atlantis approach at the time, which was, yeah, let's go in, let's drum up demand, let's stimulate demand. And then the channels have to fulfill on the back end. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of work across, the, across my sort of career with tourism um, boards and bureau um, across the, the world, particularly when I was in wholesale distribution. And that's the bit that I, I feel is, is often overlooked, right? I mean, you, we find a lot of the, the tourism boards We'll, we'll go in and, and have consumer-led strategies. Um, that's very appropriate. I mean, they'll whip up the PR. They'll have a real sort of brand focus. They'll cover off the, the business, the consumer channel. But they don't necessarily think to themselves, well, how does that customer actually end up in, in my destination? What's the mechanic? How does, it, how does that customer get through the funnel? And it's not as simple as just pretty pictures um, on a video somewhere. That customer has to fulfill somehow and Atlanta's best in class at, at the time best in class you talked a bit about the opening and obviously a, a transactional opening would probably get a bit of local press maybe a, a mayor or a local celebrity would cut cut a ribbon but you you talked about the pyrotechnics you also had Kylie Minogue and uh, it was on Sky News CNN BBC all, all over the world everyone knew about the the opening of Atlantis. How, how was that opening party to be at? And what was the reaction of the, the clients who were lucky enough to get a seat at the Andrew Hughes leisure and wholesale table? <laughs> well, you know what? It was the most sought after ticket in town. And I was actually really lucky to, to get a ticket. I mean, it was very, um, there was a lot of internal jockeying as you can imagine for, for who, are the, who are the staff that are going to be able to go and, and uh, hosts and tables. Um, I sat next to Paul Griffiths, of, um, the CEO of, of Dubai Airports at the time, and his lovely wife, and um, and uh, we had a lot of fun that night. But it was a it was an amazing, just an amazing experience. I, I remember um, watching the fireworks kick off, and Priyanka Chopra is up there opening the uh, the, the whole festivities, and 
I think my heart pounded at a pace that I've never experienced before or since. It was just, it was so intense. Um, and it was so reflective of, of what Atlantis was trying to be. And that was to, let's whip up this frenzy. Let's be something that, that, that and do stuff that, that others have, have never done. Um, but yeah, it was a sought after ticket in town and there were very, um, and uh, there was very high security at the time. I remember if you didn't have a ticket, I mean, turned away at the door. So again, then post Atlantis's opening success, you were highly in demand. And, and in this case, coincidentally by Mike Scully, who, who's been on the pod a, a couple of times and is responsible for the majority of subscribers that, that uh, untold. But he talked about some of the F&B and opening successes, particularly at Movenpick, covering the um, Ibn Battuta and the Steakhouse. Are there any stories that you'd like to add to or share and your thoughts on how you opened Ibn Battuta in such a ultra-competitive Dubai market that had moved on a couple of years from Atlantis? Well, I think Mike was, um, was a real innovator, in, innovation guy, right? And, and um, uh, affectionately known in Dubai as the Silver Fox, you know, and, and he, was a, he was a great guy to be around, very, um, very electric character, very engaging. And, you know, Mike and I would, would end up on, on road, road shows before I opened Atlantis the Palm and, and he was working with Weston and Minas Eye and the like. And we shared a lot of, of, of views around, again, around, around stories and having the right elements. And um, I think what I really liked about Mike and what we always tried to do um, with our offerings, you know, at particularly at Moven Pekidman Tudor, where perhaps I had the, the, the most influence, um, was around, around the feelings that, 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 that you want your guests to experience. So. It's one thing for you to have a nice bar with a shisha and a few frosty beverages, but that's not what it's about. It's not about what you have. It's about how it makes you feel. How does it make the guest feel when they're sitting there and enjoying the frosty and, and having a, a shisha? What's the feeling they're having? What are they thinking about? What are they talking about? And that's what you're tapping into. That's what you're really connecting into. Um, and I think what we did really successfully, I think we were... Um, we, we did a few firsts there at, at Ibn Battuta. We, um, we were the, f the first urban hotel in Dubai to offer an all-inclusive package for our, for our guests, particularly in the leisure markets. And what we did was we lever leveraged the concept of a beach resort. We then enabled our, our hotel guests to go out and use the beach at West 14th, where the steakhouse was on the Palm, on the palm Jumeirah. Um, and then we offered them a, a food and beverage package so that they could come back from the beach club and they could have um, a great dining and, and beverage and entertainment experience in one of the many restaurants that, that we had. And, um, and it was a real challenge. And, you know, Mike and I had to really pitch a lot to the owners to get them to buy into this, this thought process. You know, there's a lot of consideration around risk of consumption and the like. And it was really enjoyable to build models around this to, to figure out, okay, across a seven nights day what's the beverage consumption pattern and where does where does the um the flow through come and how much consumption occurs and how does that even itself out and it was hugely successful i mean who would have thought a hotel that had been built in in sort of the corporate area of, of dubai would be successful at um, attracting a leisure market um, and we also hosted the arabian travel market um delegations uh after our our first year of opening and I remember um, putting together and designing with the team a, a party for a couple of thousand people 
which again was the hottest ticket in town. I mean, we had we had um, sort of ladies dangling upside down from our you know very high ceiling serving champagne, and um, we had amazing DJs. And I think we pulled off Dubai's first five-star hotel flash mob at the time. You might recall they were a little bit in vogue, and we had we had dancers who were dressed as waiters and the like, and uh, immense energy. And, and again, we just followed those principles of let's let's do things differently. Let's um, create stories which drives demand rather than just satiating latent demand. Um, and how do we give the guests a feeling rather than just a product? That's fantastic. And and we've covered uh, West 14 in um, in on the pod that I did with Mike, but it would be remiss without just giving you the same feedback that is as good as any steakhouse that I've ever had in Manhattan. And uh, it, again, that it showed the experience, knowledge and nous that, that you all had from your career experiences to be able to position a standalone steakhouse on the Palm as one of the, the greatest restaurants in, in Dubai and the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the food and beverage team that Mike assembled were, they were red hot. Um, you know, you had Craig Cork and Tim Tate, who's over in Thailand these days and the like. And these guys, they, um, they, they really, again, they just bought into this, this, this feelings-based product offering. And I think, I think probably eight of the best 10 steaks I've ever had in, in my life were, were in Dubai. Um, and a lot of them there at West 14, I mean, they had great, great atmosphere. Uh, um, we always had a, a bit of live music on the weekends and, a good blend of locals and tourists and things exactly the the sort of match that you want to have um, when you when you open a food and beverage place in Dubai. Thank you for listening. That concludes episode one, the storyteller with Andrew Hughes. Please click on the link for episode two to hear more about Andrew's extraordinary career, including his time in Singapore and most recently the formation of HW Consulting and the purchase of the Margaret River Holiday Cottages. Enjoy and thank you.